TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, I'm pretty sure I saw you get vaporized by Silic since our last recording. What are you doing here now? Oh, Chris, it's too hard to understand. It's just a time travel thing. It happens Ah, all the time. Just that. Well, luckily, I'm half Vulcan, so I only halfway believe in time travel. Well, this is, un- this is true. I mean, the, the Vulcan science director has determined that time travel is impossible. So <laughs> Exactly. You know, I actually wrote down a note watching this. With the number of times that we see people time travel in Star Trek, it's amazing that the Vulcan science directorate still doesn't believe in time travel. How have they avoided this all this time, or are they just in denial? Uh, I don't know, Chris, but I'm not sure we have the time to discuss all that. Well, I know Troy doesn't, and maybe we don't either, so let's let's jump into the discussion here, everyone. We're going to be talking about the Season 1 finale shockwave today. Here's a quick rundown of the story. When the Enterprise drops by Paragon 2 to check on colonists... They accidentally ignite the atmosphere and destroy the settlement, or so it seems. As the investigation unfolds, Archer gets assistance from crewman Daniels, back from the dead, and learns that the temporal Cold War is heating up and that it is the Sulaban, not the Enterprise crew, who are to blame for the accident. And there's more than just the lives of 3,600 colonists at stake. Earth itself may be destroyed. Now, Matthew, that might happen if we can't fix the timeline. So let's just talk about the time travel element right from the beginning here. This story has similarities with things like All Good Things, Future's End, a lot of other episodes where we've seen our heroes have to overcome obstacles by playing with time. So what did you think about the use of time travel in this story? And can you think back to the first time you saw it and how you felt? Yeah, I mean, it was... It was really interesting going back to this because, honestly, what struck me this time was how similar this story is actually to Star Trek VI. Mm-hmm. Before the, the the time travel element, there is, I mean, it's very much the same story. Mm-hmm. The Enterprise being blamed for something that they didn't do to try and change the course of history, right? And so, I mean, to me, that was that was kind of cool to see because that's my favorite Star Trek movie. And so kind of referencing that in that way was fun. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, to go and do and add time travel back into this and kind of bring in the temporal Cold War again and everything like that, that was really fascinating. And, and in all honesty, what's great about this story, I think, is that this isn't as much a time travel story per se, because so much of it doesn't take place in a future or the past or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just really a way for them to be able to give us the things that Archer needs, you know, Mm -hmm. and I guess to 
you know, to bring him back in the temporal cold war. So, and I, I liked again, like, you know, watching this the way we have, I really liked that we've been kind of building up to the Sula bond being back in this way. And I think all of that really worked when you get to the revelation then too. So mm-hmm. I don't know. How did, how did you respond to the idea of like kind of making time travel a part of this and, and, you know, especially since right now, and we were, as we were joking, Vulcans don't agree with time travel being <laughs> right, impossible. Right. And so in some ways it feels like this is the story that when we get to the po- second part, like, you know, Vulcans aren't going to be able to really say that anymore. Yeah, right. Well, if I think back to when it first aired, I recall my reaction to it as being good. And I thought it was interesting I, I like time travel stories, so usually I'm happy with them, even if I've seen many of them. And I think it made sense here because we had been building up to this temporal Cold War thing, and we knew that there was someone playing around with time. And we have Crewman Daniels, who we've seen before, as sort of a catalyst for the story for allowing Archer to find out the information that he needs. And so I thought it worked pretty well. Rewatching it here, it struck me how there are these similarities with all good things, because I watched that not too long ago. And when Archer comes back and he's able to tell them how to scan for the ship, how to build these things that they need, and he has this knowledge, technical knowledge of the future, that even... Trip, who is the engineer, isn't familiar with this stuff, just as Data and Geordi were a little bit surprised at some of the concepts that they themselves had come up with, but that Picard revealed to them in the present time frame and certainly in the past. It felt kind of familiar in that sense, but in a good way, because like I said, I like those kinds of stories. And yeah, like you said, it's not quite as much of a time travel story here because we don't have the ship traveling through time. We just have Archer shifting a little bit to be aware that these factions in the Temporal Cold War may be starting to cause trouble and that he's more at the center of Mm -hmm. what's going on. Well, and it it was interesting too, watching this in conjunction with the fact that, you know, Star Trek Picard is on right now. And the second season and and the way in which, you know, that feels like bits and pieces of things that have been done before Mm -hmm. with their time travel stories remixed. And uh, again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? You know, if you do it well, it's not a bad thing at all. So I, I think that's the thing here that it felt like they were utilizing pieces of stories that they had done before, but in a way that played out well for the characters in this story and affected them pretty mightily, you know? So mm-hmm. I, it's like they they were able to do exactly what you want, which is to make it feel relevant to the, the characters you're telling stories about in this show. Yeah, right, right. You might feel a little bit of that element that I think is the reason that Rick and Brennan were not as keen on doing the Temporal Cold War in the beginning when they wanted to do a prequel series in that you have humans in the 22nd century. It's the early days of space exploration for humans, and they're already caught up in this 
very futuristic conflict that's going on. And then you've got Archer jumping around to the 31st century and back. You've got future guy who we'll talk about later, who's from the 28th century. We've got Daniels who can move around here and there. And I think, you know, maybe for some people who want to be more purists about the prequel story and about humans easing out into space, it might feel like we're introducing some Star Trek elements from further down the timeline into these early stories too soon. Did you have any feeling like that? I don't think so. I I, I mean, I think then and even now, one of the things that I, at least that I felt like what they were doing with the temporal cold war and, and, you know, obviously they had to because the studio wanted it. But to me, I think what they're trying to do is to show just how important Archer is, as well as the enterprise in this mission. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the fact of this story here, that if we derail this one mission uh, for this one ship, well, it's so pivotal to human history that everything hinges on it. You know, they don't. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what makes it kind of interesting just for Archer himself uh, to kind of learn that a little bit from Daniels about how important they are. And and that kind of then, I think, really affects the rest of the series in some ways. Like Archer realizes more than he should, actually, because of everything that's happened. Mm-hmm. The, everything he does has has will echo in Star Trek history, right? And mm-hmm. um, everything he does is going to have a major impact on what the future does look like. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's something really interesting about that with this storyline. And so for me, that's the thing that I actually enjoy about this story because it almost helps legitimize, okay, this is why we're telling a prequel this is why we're telling a prequel about this ship and this crew, because they are important. They do mm-hmm. impact and help create the history and the storyline that we then know going forward. So, Yeah. Well, that's a good transition to the next topic on our outline, which is Archer's guilt. And once he understands, thanks to Daniels, the significance of his role and the significance of the role of the Enterprise in the future of humanity and Earth and Starfleet and and all of this, of course, he feels that need to be certain that they succeed because he knows that so much of history hinges on their success. But before he finds that out, he's already feeling like his role as the captain of the first Warp 5 ship is very important and that the lives of everyone in Starfleet hinge on his success and he feels like he mm-hmm. has been a failure in his position as the captain and leading that mission and then he starts to feel a lot of guilt and he starts to withdraw and i was wondering what you thought about that aspect of the storyline and what it means for his character who we've seen growing in confidence throughout mm-hmm. the season then falling back like that I mean, I I thought it all felt really natural for this character. I mean, I think we have seen in this show already is that 
Archer is a character of deep feeling. And, you know, just even the way he feels about his crew already, the the relationships that he's got with with specific people, whether it's to Paul or Trip or, you know, I mean, he's, he's working to make relationships with all of these people. And like you said, I, I, I think specifically of of his his discussion of how. He's let everybody down and. Because of him, there are people in Starfleet who may experience the very thing that his father experienced, right? Uh, right. And I, I think that's the nice connection here is that Archer is worried that he's caused that same life uh, that that his father had and that mm-hmm. he felt like he might even have for so long now for a whole other generation and and that's you know that is a huge weight to carry uh and so i i, I think Bacula do you think that's a fair really well do you think that's a fair weight for him to put on his own shoulders i mean i can understand it as an individual because sometimes i feel mm-hmm. like the experiences i had as a child and i tried as a father to prevent those from happening to my children and in recent years you know i have found that I've ended up on a path similar to what happened to my father, and therefore I wasn't able to succeed fully in what I was trying to do. But that's on an individual level. Now he's putting like mm-hmm. the weight of an entire planet or more on his own shoulders. It seems like an awful lot. I think that it does actually feel legitimate because of what he knows. And sees already the Vulcans trying to do mm. in light of this. You know, uh, Vulcans have, have definitely listened to the adage, you know, let no good crisis go to a waste, uh, especially with humans. Nope, nope, nope. You got to pull it back, you know. Uh, and so I don't think that it's too far of a stretch for him to be feeling like this, mm-hmm. especially in light of what he's already seen Vulcans do. Mm-hmm. And really the only Vulcan that he has been able to somewhat turn around, you know, has been to Paul, but that's because they've spent so much time together. So close to not only, you know, her with him, but her with the entire crew. Mm-hmm. And that's really changed her, uh, perspective on humanity. Yeah. That hasn't really happened to any of the other Vulcans back on Earth because they don't actually really spend much time with humans in relationship with them. So I I don't know. I do you I mean, did you think that this didn't feel or it felt like he was putting too much on himself? Or did you feel like what I don't know. What did you think? Uh not really. I think it works fine in the story. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about him as a person and imagining putting that much weight on your own shoulders and how unrealistic it is for each of us to think that we can be responsible for that much and then to punish ourselves if we mm-hmm. don't fully succeed because it's it's so much to ask, you know, one person to do, but of course he is the captain. He is the leader of the only warp five ship that's out there exploring, and this mission that they're on is a first 
for humanity. Yep. So I completely understand where he's coming from. Now, in terms of the prequel and the character and what they've been trying to tell in season one, I think it works well. I was imagining, well, if this happened to Kirk or if it happened to Picard or Cisco or Janeway, would they fall into the state the way that T'Pol describes it to Phlox, for example? You know, he, she says that he seems to alternate between agitation, despondency, and guilt. He spends most of his time alone, so he's withdrawn from everybody, even though he's the captain. And uh, I, I think those other captains would be less likely to do that, but I think that's because they have a lot more history to fall back on, those who came before them, and more experiences with this type of situation in their own captains, captaincy, which he doesn't. And so in that respect, I think that it is a realistic way to portray Archer mm -hmm. and how a human in that situation would react. And I think Flox yeah. does a good job of explaining to T'Pol that, you know, this is how humans are. Flox tells her, trust me, it would be unnatural for the captain not to be unaffected by grief under right. these circumstances. It's human nature. And then Flock says he'll be fine. Because I again I think the Nobulans understand humans a whole lot better than Vulcans oh, are yeah. capable of Absolutely. understanding humans. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I had I mean, it, uh, we're much more I mean we're very similar, you right. know. Uh I think they're they're probably somewhat more mature. Uh yeah, but definitely. at the same time they, they understand our connection to our feelings yeah, and our emotions. Exactly. So But that in that exchange there is important for the show as well, especially in season one, because again, we've got the two aliens on the ship talking to each other again about human nature and really contrasting how two outside parties can have very different views looking in at humanity. No, I, I think that's another good point too. And it's, it's one of those moments where, you know, you didn't get that as much in TOS, but mm -hmm. in, I really think of like Deep Space Nine where you have like Odo and Kira talking yeah, about exactly. humanity or Odo and Quark talking yeah. about humanity. You get that that outside looking in yeah. discussion. And don't um, forget which is Garrick. always yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, honestly, Deep Space Nine was rife with with those characters that could do that. Yeah. More so than any of the other shows. Did, so Did you just I, say mourn so? Because mourn, <laughs> he was like full of insight. <laughs> he was he was you just you know we only we we just he was always about to start talking when the camera panned away exactly. it's always too bad we he's just camera yeah. shy that was the thing you know he, yeah that's really what it was yeah so. yeah all right well let's move on to another topic kind of the the core of what's going on here this temporal cold war it's heating up and they've been going through the setup throughout season one it's been picking up speed late in the season and then we get to the finale, and it's a great chance for the writers to use it as a cliffhanger. And coincidentally, I, I've never really think about this until I'm in moments like this where we're getting ready to talk. But Enterprise is actually the first Star Trek series to end its first season on a cliffhanger. And I think it makes sense because 
at that point, it had become a thing to end seasons on cliffhangers. And we just happened to be in the first season of a new show. But Rick Berman had said they weren't certain if they were going to do a cliffhanger or not in the first season. And so they did. And I think the Temporal Cold War uh, gave them a really good uh, storyline to work with there and to advance this thing with the Sulabine. So what were your thoughts on the Temporal Cold War kind of really kicking into action? I mean, it's it's great because this thing has kind of been on the back burner, you know, uh, it, and then it's been simmering, you know, it's been kind of waffling back and forth, will they, won't they, basically, with the Temporal Cold War. And then finally here, you know, we get this revelation and i think the way they do it is is really interesting you know with daniel saying you know somebody just made a huge move mm-hmm. uh and a move nobody was really expecting and that move is to basically try to change all of history here with humanity and their course uh in space mm-hmm. and so which is fascinating and I think it's a it's a it's a great way to 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 you know do this cliffhanger where you know you leave Archer stranded in the 31st century, but with no easy way to get home. At least it seems like because this the world that they're now in doesn't have anything they need really to to really help them get home easily, which mm-hmm. is great. I mean you you want to basically set up a really tough premise it's kind of like you know the best of both worlds where you you set up this impossible task of of how do you follow it up i mean and and then the question becomes do you follow it up well you know um but i think this episode is a lot of fun uh in the way that it does it and then i'm really looking forward to seeing how it plays out again because I remember bits and pieces, but it's been a while since I've watched through Enterprise, mm-hmm. so I can't remember all the details. So, yeah. Did you feel that way, though? Were you excited that we were finally utilizing this story that they hadn't, like, let off the chain yet? Yeah, I'm trying to think back to when this first aired and how I felt I think that at that time, I don't think I appreciated some of the stories that you and I have talked about over the past few months as much as I do now, because now that I'm older and I've had more life experiences and I can really analyze the characters in a way that I couldn't when I was that age, I think I've come to appreciate some of the stories a lot more. And I say that to say that when this came up at the end of season one, I think I felt a little bit like it's nice that we're getting a bit more action and excitement going in the story because some of season one was feeling a bit slow to me at that time. So yeah, I think that that was probably my reaction was, okay, now we're kicking things in to gear and let's see where this is going to go. And I also, 
I don't think I was expecting this type of cliff, cliffhanger at the end of season one at the time. And so when it happened, it was like, oh, I get to wait through the summer and find out what happens again, like I used to do back in the day, right? And in that sense, yeah, I think it was it was pretty good. You mentioned Star Trek Six earlier, and there are some other parallels I felt in this story for that. It was like, well, if we could not have ignited the atmosphere, it means someone else did. Right. Yep. Someone nearby, just below us, a cloaked ship, a cloaked mm-hmm. ship. You know, it's like, yep. it was that same yep. storyline again. It was exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there, actually that element of them docking for a short bit undetected is an element that just got reused recently in the fourth season of Discovery. So Star Trek elements, they they come and go and they come back around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talking about Daniels, last time that we saw him, we thought that he had been killed. And they did lock down his quarters. It reminded me a little bit of after Spock was gone in the films and his quarters were locked down. But were you surprised to see Daniels come back? Did you think that the story might go another route or did he feel like this agent that was going to be used as the temporal cold war played out because of his connection to Starfleet and to Archer and so forth. Yeah. I mean, that storyline element feels a little bit comic bookish, Mm -hmm. you know, in the sense that somebody that you thought was dead can come back that or I guess soap opera ish. <laughs> that was actually my brother. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's Crewman Daniel's twin brother who came back. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it absolutely makes sense that that somebody with time travel and all that kind of technology that they've got and everything like that, that yeah. this could be a possibility. And I, I think what it also meant too, in some ways, like this is much crazier of a storyline than maybe we thought it was, you know, if people that mm-hmm. we thought were killed could actually come back. And I think what it, it, it kind of ups the stakes for us as to what's possible and what could actually happen. I mean, it just, you know, you can do all sorts of different things with, with those possibilities opened and, you know, there are always possibilities. Yeah. Well, and they don't try to explain it too much either. I think Daniels right. just tells him like, well, yeah, they killed me in a sense. But we don't really get into the details of, of what that is. And yeah. and I also found Daniels' explanation to Archer about Archer himself in different time frames. You know, Archer's asking him, well, who was that? And who just went to bed on the Enterprise? And Daniel says, well, that didn't happen yet. That that uh, for, I like those kinds of stories. So for me, it was, it was yeah. a pretty interesting one. Another element, well, oh, Sulabine. Let's talk about Sulabine just for a moment because we had the buildup. They, they sprinkled in the Sulabine and detained, and then we had two days and two nights again. So there was this buildup towards the Sulabine being more involved. But did you see them as becoming a big player as they were here? Were they actually carry out 
an attack to try to sabotage the Enterprise. Not just Silic, not just random Suliban who we meet here and there, but like an actual organized group carrying out this attack. Yeah, I mean, it, it worked for me because I, I I felt like it was a nice bookend to the beginning of the season mm-hmm. where we do see that the Cabal is a pretty large organization. It, it is a good-sized uh, sect of Sulaban. Mm-hmm. Say that three times fast. Um, <laughs> and it really, I think, made good on them being major players in the storyline then for Enterprise to bring them back and to utilize them in this way. And, you know, I, I think one of the things, too, is that it continues to bring up questions then you know like because we see more of future guy here and and i think really that begin like what 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 do they want and why mm-hmm. you know yeah. um i i think and of course that's a question that never ever gets answered so um, right yeah well future guy is another thing that i wanted to talk about a little bit because we won't go into it here because we're not going to spoil those storylines, but in the lit verse, we do learn who Future Guy is, including his name and why he's doing these things and also his fate. It all plays out in the novels. But sticking with what we see on the screen, which is what the majority of Star Trek fans consume, what did you think about how he's portrayed, how he's been portrayed thus far? And then what do you think about that popular fan theory that's been going around for a long time that it's actually Archer from the future trying to correct the past or somehow, you know, influence what he had done in the past? Did that ever make sense to you? That didn't make sense to me. I mean, unless it's like, is this, you know, mere universe version of... Mm-hmm. Archer in this universe because like why would Archer be wanting to sabotage himself that just you know I, I know Brandon kind of threw that out there you know years ago uh, as a, a possible thought that they had had but I just mm-hmm. uh, that feels ridiculously silly and very soap opera-ish honestly <laughs> well maybe it was Jonathan Archer's twin brother Jimmy Archer <laughs> from the 28th century who <laughs> somehow had gotten transported to the 28th century and assumed the identity of his twin brother who actually died by falling down a turbo lift shaft. Yeah, no, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I always found it kind of... I mean, I'm glad they came back to it here at the end of the season because you mentioned earlier kind of bookending the pilot episode with the end of the first season, having him come back, it was a good uh, creative decision, I think. But I found him to be an odd figure because there's not enough to go on as to why he's doing the things that he's doing, why he's helping others, why he's genetically modifying the Sulaban, why Silic is helping him and so forth. And I think if you had a story like modern Star Trek, like the seasons of Discovery or Picard, having that kind of mystery in the early episodes would be fine because you know that it's going to be revealed sometime in the next 
say, 10 episodes. But the way it's done here, it's just so open-ended, you don't really know why it's going on. And it creates a bit of intrigue and a bit of mystery for the story. But I think Mm -hmm. at some point you need to pay that off more than what we ultimately got. Well, and I do think it's one of those places where this is not Deep Space Nine in the sense of, you know, they planted a lot of seeds and they didn't always know completely where they were going, but in the end, it always feels like it really works. And here, it's like they, they, ne- I, I don't feel like they ever, Future Guy in the Temporal Cold War in the first place, it never feels like they had planned out a logical end to it. Like, and, and that's where right, right. I feel like that would have been more helpful for them. Okay. So the studio is making us do this thing. Okay. And if your plan is, you know, to have seven seasons, you should have figured out, okay, where are we going to fit this in? And then how do we, you know, organically then find a way to wrap that up and, and answer the questions. So that way then you, you're writing towards something. And Mm -hmm. and to me, that's always what helps writing better. I mean, it doesn't always work. I mean, you can look at the serialized version of Star Trek these days and, and, you know, they supposedly kind of know more where they're going, but it doesn't always make for a better or more cohesive story either. So, you Mm -hmm. know, yeah. I think a difference with DS9 is that they planted a lot of seeds, although I I tend to think of it more as they left a lot of strings dangling that they could grab when they wanted to, because planting seeds suggests that you have a plan, that you're trying to grow something. And that happens mm-hmm. from time to time, but what happens more often on DS9 is that they just leave these threads hanging and they can grab one if they want to later on, if it makes right. sense and expand upon it. But they could also just leave it dangling and you don't really notice mm-hmm. because you feel like that little element was resolved well enough. And the temporal cold war definitely feels more like the planting seed approach right. to it where yep. yeah. we need to go somewhere with this but we haven't really considered where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And and I do think the way that it was ultimately resolved reflects the fact that they just kind of came up later with a way to end it because it was time to end it rather than right. it being the payoff of something that was set up. All right. Well, okay, one more topic to talk about. We talked about Archer and his guilt a little bit earlier. What we didn't really talk about were his interactions with T'Pol and also what the incident igniting the atmosphere and the Vulcan reaction might mean. So the mission is being canceled. Forrest tells Archer that, you know, the Vulcans have told us we need to call it off. And of course, Archer is in a lot of grieving because of that and feels a lot of guilt because he feels like he's failed. And what I found interesting was how that actually brought T'Pol and Archer closer together. And T'Pol actually convinces Archer to push back against the Vulcans and says that she's willing to push back and 
convince her own government. Are you willing to do the same for yours? Yeah, you had mentioned earlier, you know, the conversation that she has with Phlox, and I think that he helps her to be able to see something that she hasn't quite been able to understand about humans and Archer specifically. And in that, I think it gives her the understanding of then how to handle the situation and how to say the right thing to Archer to get him kind of out of his funk uh, and his bunk and <laughs> and get him moving, right? And and get him questioning and, and, and looking at things. And, and in many ways, you know, I, I think she doesn't realize this, but it, it is her conversation with him, I think, that makes him more receptive to Daniels, you know, and, you know, the, with the, you get the idea with the EM signature, and then I think it makes him, him to be able to put those pieces together more easily when Daniels brings him to the past that, yeah, she's done a really good thing here. And I I love this moment too, because it's another kind of punctuation mark of to Paul becoming more a part of this crew mm-hmm. and being on humanity's side, being yeah. a partner, right? Yeah. You know, not somebody who is acting like a parent, looking over their shoulder, being like, I saw that, but being more of a person who's willing to come alongside and truly be a partner in a way the Vulcans should have been probably from the first place and the whole situation, everything probably would have been better if if that had been done that way. Yeah, right. Well, I thought it was, I thought it said a lot that we ended the season with a Vulcan in command of the Enterprise. And we started yeah. the season with that same Vulcan questioning humanity's readiness mm-hmm. to even go out into deep space and right. kind of being actively hostile as a member of the crew yep. at the very beginning. And then we've seen her grow and grow and feel more at home with the humans and feel more part of the crew. And then we've seen Archer shed some of his uh, preconceived notions about Vulcans and warm up to T'Pol and them start right. to work together. And that all came to fruition here at the end of the episode. And then finally, he leaves the ship in her command. And what I also thought was very telling is that when he says, I'm placing you in command of the Enterprise, he says, I advise you to maintain your present course and speed and to keep an open mind about what's happening and time travel and all of those things. He doesn't command her to maintain present course and speed. He just says, I advise you to, which I thought really showed his ability to trust to Paul now and feel like he could leave his crew in her hands and he could trust right. her to take care of the crew and to try to find the best solution for Earth and for humans, not the best solution for Vulcans. Yeah. No, I, I think not only is that the case, but I also thought, you know, he puts a lot of trust in her because he tells Strip, he's like, I'm, T'Pol's the captain now. 
you know, mm-hmm. it kind of uh, brings to mind that moment uh, in in the Kelvin timeline, mm-hmm. and he's the captain. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that passing of that torch, and but I also thought that you know when you talk about the idea of like time travel, I think Archer is you see his trust in Daniels in the sense that he has a a thought in his mind, like something's mm-hmm. up Daniel's sleeve, and so. With time travel, we may be back with help before mm-hmm. you know it, kind of thing. So, yeah, I I, I think the whole th- thing there. There's a lot of really interesting things. There's a lot of nuance happening, but I think, like you said, there's a real beauty of that. They didn't even want her butt on the ship, you yeah, know, right? Like, and now they're all willing to follow her as Archer leaves, and and I think that speaks real volumes for the show. Yeah. Yeah. His his only real orders at the end, other than advice, were to the rest of the crew. Like you said, he told Trip she's mm-hmm. the captain and he tells yep. the rest of the crew to support to pull. And then the other order was don't give cheese to Porthos. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought the the story ended quite well there. And then the final scene in the thirty first century we see that the city's been devastated and Daniels says, I was just having breakfast or lunch you know, 30 minutes earlier and, and everything was beautiful. And, you know, 10 mm-hmm. minutes ago it was beautiful and now it's destroyed, but it doesn't seem like it just happened 10 minutes ago. It seemed like it happened a long time ago. And I thought that was an interesting way of throwing that one last twist for the cliffhanger of... Yes. Well, when did this happen? Because for all we know, this could have happened in the 22nd century. Just it could have happened a week after mm-hmm. where we were. We don't know. Or maybe it just happened a year earlier or a day earlier. And it it left us with a lot of intrigue to jump in in the next season. One of the things that I think it does, too, is it shows you the realities of time travel with these rules right mm-hmm. that one single thing could irrevocably alter the future with a terrible consequence you know mm-hmm. obviously playing around with the idea of the butterfly effect yeah. and so that that one thing where you know daniel said i was told to bring you here and this was not supposed to happen. So you're like, whoa, okay. So like this time organization in the future from the 31st century that we think is basically omniscient in its understanding of like the flow of time apparently isn't. And I think mm-hmm. that that's the thing, like you said, it really leaves you with a great cliffhanger. Okay, something's really happening. And now I need to know what that is. Yeah, but you have to wait all summer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but not anymore. Now you can just go watch the next part right away if you want. Yeah. I I uh I sometimes I feel bad for fans today that they can't have that experience of having to wait three months to find out if mm-hmm. Picard's gonna live or if Earth's right. gonna be destroyed right. or whatever, you know. Well, and I mean I, I think one of the things too in in you know, I, even as we're talking right now on the artificial tango one week at a time about star trek picard just the way we used to you know mm-hmm. when shows were coming out mm-hmm. and 
we do that, you know, now with the shows that get released like that, like The Mandalorian or anything. And you have the other networks, like, say, like a Netflix or something where they just kind of drop the whole season. And, you know, I found in my experience, for the most part, shows last longer in my memory when I have the experience of going week to week. Yeah, and then yeah, spending time online or with friends or whatever, talking in person about those episodes and the speculating mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And that's kind of what where the fun is in that. Whereas, you know, you just drop a whole season, you can watch the whole thing in a weekend. There's less fun in yeah. that because we've I think in some ways like you do realize that. Instant gratification is not actually as enjoyable because if I wolf down an incredible steak, well, I might as well have just had a hamburger. Right. So I'd no, you savor good food. And so that's what you hope these seasons are going to be like is good food, you know, and good wine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so yeah, this, this is, this is where you, this episode kind of leaves you. You're like, oh man, I just going to keep like slowly chewing on that now. <laughs> well, it was especially great when you had months to speculate because you could just, your mind could run wild. You had so much time because like with Picard right now, like you said, you and I are talking about each episode on the artificial tango, but I feel like the week goes by very quickly and I don't have as much time to consider right, exactly. what might be happening before we talk about it again. But I think yeah. that for people like us who love to talk about these things and speculate, dropping one episode per week is definitely the way to go. But I think it depends on the viewer because, you know, I know a lot of viewers who they don't care about talking about it with other people. Mm-hmm. They just want to watch right. and they're really anxious to see what comes next and they love having it all drop at once. So, yeah, definitely a different tastes for different people where that's concerned, but I enjoy having a cliffhanger like this. Well, Matthew, any final thoughts on Shockwave and season one even, and what's your rating for this? Yeah, I mean, you know, looking back at season one, I'd say, you know, this is a strong season of Star Trek. You know, I I feel like this season is much maligned by people for some reason, and I think it's actually pretty good. Um, I think there's in our ratings just for episodes in general. I I, w- I would say our average is probably three and a half to four, which is great mm-hmm. for any season of any show. So um, I- I've really enjoyed rewatching uh, season one, and I think this is an excellent cliffhanger. I think I would probably give this four out of five Vulcan stairs. Um, you know, <laughs> just like stares, like, you know, staring at you. Right. That's um, S-T-A-R-E, not exactly. S-T-A-I-R, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm picturing um, what Vulcan stares would be. Yeah. yeah I they, think they're just they, like human stares for the most part. I think part. so, but but yeah. a little bit bigger and more majestic, I think. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, to me, that I, I do kind of want to now go watch what comes next because I can't quite remember. And that's always fun, too. It's like. You know, where you have that, you don't just watch it all the time. And so it makes it enjoyable to rewatch. So absolutely excited. Where where are you mm-hmm. with this one, Chris? 
I enjoyed the episode. I thought it was nice to get a bit of action and a bit of intrigue going to end the season. I like time travel stories, as I mentioned. So I'm always happy to have something that has a time element in it. And as for the whole season, I'm with you. I think it was a great season of Star Trek. I I don't know if there were any episodes that I really felt like were a flop or were weak. The ones that get a lower rating for me, I still think are pretty good episodes of Star Trek. So as a whole season, I think they did a nice job. I think that this season is sometimes dismissed by fans for a similar reason that the first season of Deep Space Nine is dismissed. I think that some of the stories are a bit slow for some viewers, or they feel like, ah, we've seen this idea before. And I hear Deep Space Nine fans who advise people like, just skip season one, go ahead and start with at least season two, or start with season four and go from there. And you'll enjoy it more. And I I always hate hearing that because I think season one of that series, just like season one of this series, are both definitely good and worth watching. And as for this episode itself, I'm going to give it eight cloaked bees. All right, everyone. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts on Shockwave and season one of Enterprise as a whole. There are many ways for you to share those thoughts with us. The easiest way is probably to go to Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That's our closed listeners group. If you're already a member, you know what to do. But if you're not, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, and it should come right on up. It is a closed group, so please answer the questions and agree to the rules of the forum so that I can let you in. And in there, we will put a post for this episode, and you can share your thoughts on the comment threads with us and fellow listeners, and we'd love to hear from you there. And you can send us email if you like. Just go to our website, trek.fm slash contact. Use the form you find there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5. And that'll come to Matthew and me by email. And of course, you can find us in social media. Our username on Twitter, Instagram, and everywhere is trekfm. And we look forward to hearing your thoughts. And if your podcast app of choice allows you to leave a rating and a review, we would love to get that from you as well. It helps other people learn about the show and helps us bring in more listeners. And we love to hear what you think about the show. So please consider leaving us a rating and a review. Now, Matthew, when you're not you know, getting out your knives and bear skins, trying to figure out how to get yourself back from the 31st century, where can people find you? Well, uh, you could find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, all of those type of places. Uh, you can also find me here on the network talking about everything not Star Trek related in the Six Hundred Two Club, uh, where we get a chance to. You know, there's lots of fandoms out there that we want to be a part of. So there's some great bonus shows in that feed as well. So I hope you will check those out. Uh, and then, of course, doing literary treks. The Orb and the Artificial Tango, Literary Treks, is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Chris, as we've mentioned here many times already. And then, of course, we talked about a little bit uh, Star Trek Picard Season 2, and we're talking about that on the Artificial Tango, so we hope you'll check that out. And then you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network. I've got two shows over there. One is Completed. Uh, finished show did with Drea Kaufman. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And 
then you can find me over on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars. But Chris, if people want to, you know, see what you've got going on as you, you know, pour yourself a lazy cup of coffee there on the Enterprise, where can people find you? Yeah, I could use a little coffee right now for sure. And if you'd like to join me for that coffee, you can find me elsewhere on the network talking, of course, Deep Space Nine with you, Matthew, as you mentioned on the Orb and the Artificial Tango. And also I have Interphase and other things going on. Larry Nemechek and I do the Ready Room from time to time and still working on some behind the scenes things as well. And when I'm not doing that, I'm busy with my magazine publishing. And if you want to find out more about that, just follow me on Twitter. You'll see some stuff there and you can hop over and check out that stuff if you're interested. And if you'd like to catch me on Twitter or anywhere in social media, my username is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That is my username everywhere. Twitter is where I'm most active and I'd love to hear from you there. If you'd like to help us keep Warp 5, the 602 Club, the Artificial Tango, and everything else that we're doing going. We could definitely use your help. If you'd like to find out how to get involved in the network and how to support us, please visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to find out how. We send a huge thank you to everyone who's supporting us there right now. We would not be able to get these shows out to you without your help. So thank you all for supporting us. And if you're not yet, we do hope you'll come aboard. Well, Matthew, of course, Shockwave Part 2 is next up for us here on Warp 5. But we did want to let everyone know before we go that we're going to leave you with a little cliffhanger of our own as we take a short break from Warp 5. Now, we're not going to be gone long, but we're going to take a little bit of a break. And during that time, we're going to be recording new episodes of The Orb so that we can keep both of these shows moving along smoothly on a regular schedule. It's a little bit of catch up. It's difficult for us to schedule time together because of our time zones living on opposite sides of the world. And we have many other podcasts going. So we're going to take a short break here on Warp 5, get some new episodes of The Orb prepared, and then come back. And we'll have both of them running smoothly as we jump into Season 2 and continue our journey through the 22nd century. And also, of course, we're going to be continuing to do the artificial tango during that time as well through the end of Picard Season 2. So, Matthew, it's been fun going through Season 1 with you, and I'm looking forward to the next stage. Well, Chris, I can't wait either, so let's go. Let's go.